0: Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 32, Return to Babylon There is no shortage of paranormal stories associated with motion pictures. It was long said that anybody who played Superman on film or television was cursed because George Reeves, who played Superman in the 1950s television series, died of suicide, and Christopher Reeves, who played the character on the film in the 1970s and 80s, suffered paralysis due to an accident with a horse in the 90s, and died nine years later at the relatively young age of 52. Similarly, the sad fates of several actors associated with the Poltergeist series of movies has often been attributed to the disrespectful use of real human skeletons, rather than props, in the film. The sets of both The Exorcist and The Omen, towering films in 1970s supernatural horror, allegedly were host to a large number of eerie, frightening, and unexplained events. But those stories are about curses or hauntings that plagued the sets of films or people who worked on the films. The films themselves are not said to be haunted. However, there are some rare movies that have a reputation for the moving image itself being the site of the supernatural. And in this episode, I want to speak about one such film, Return to Babylon. (laughs) The film, Return to Babylon, is a bit of an interesting oddity. A silent film completed around 2008 and released in 2008, 2012, or 2013. I've seen references to all of those being the release date, a confusion likely to the film never receiving distribution. Return to Babylon is comprised of multiple vignettes, each of which tells the tale of Hollywood's early years, focusing on the scandals that made and broke the stars of the silent film era. Return to Babylon has some similarities to the 2011 silent film The Artist, which was a critical darling and won wide acclaim, but, unlike The Artist, Return to Babylon struggled to find an audience or even a distributor. According to the director, Alex Monte he had wanted to make a silent film in the style of those from the 1920s, and one night in the mid-1990s, he was walking back to his car when he found a bag on the sidewalk. The bag contained 19 rolls of unused black-and-white 16mm film. Kanawati decided that, with this film, he'd make his movie. The film was shot on a shoestring budget, despite having a number of well-known actors in its cast. It never found a distributor, thanks in part to the sheer oddness of making a silent film in the modern era, though, yes, the artist was successful. And so it took a while for people to see Return to Babylon, but when they did see it, they saw something disturbing. Not the content of the story, but things that were happening on screen. The film has a framing device in which actress Theda Barra, played by Sylvia B. Suarez, gazes into her crystal ball and sees images that are then shown to us. For those unaware, Theda Barra was an actress from Ohio, but her studio claimed she was born in Egypt and steeped in the occult, and she was often portrayed as a mystic or a witch. So, Theta Bara, a woman of mundane origin portrayed by Hollywood as something dark and mysterious, seems a good entry point into a film said to show the otherworldly. In some scenes, the fingers of characters elongate into inhuman, possibly claw-like appendages. People specifically claim to have seen this in the opening sequence, where Theta Bara waves her hands over the crystal ball, and they seem unusually long and claw-like. It happens again in a later sequence, where Rudolph Valentino's father gesticulates wildly and his hands and fingers appear to extend and develop webbing. In other places throughout the film, the faces of the actors appear to change into the faces of demonic monsters or desiccated corpses. In one case, an actress opens her mouth and fangs appear. In another, the actor playing Fatty Arbuckle's face appears to bloat, his mouth vanishes, and his eyes glow. In another sequence an actor playing an impish creature dancing in Theta Bara's crystal ball, appears to develop an elongated nose and his ears seem to turn into horns. Throughout the film, there are additional scenes of faces changing into horrifying images. Hard to see while watching the film, but you can find plenty of frame captures online. Filmmakers insist that there were no special effects and that they did not design these weird changes. The usual take is that the special effects that could do this, referred to as morphing, would not have been feasible on a minuscule budget. In terms of on-set creepiness, the cast and crew described numerous spooky happenings. Feeling watched, feeling people poking or shoving them, hearing strange sounds without a clear source, and so on. Jennifer Tilly, who plays Clara Bow, has been especially vocal about this. What are the sources of these strange phenomena? The film was shot in the homes and other favored places frequented by the stars whose fate the film dramatizes. Perhaps these locations are haunted, and this showed up on the film. Maybe it's the film itself, those canisters that mysteriously came into Kanawati's possession. Did some mysterious power want these images unleashed on the world and made the film available as an avenue for that? While making the film, Kanawati released video online in which he described some of the things he was seeing and claimed that, In addition to the sinister images previously described, there were also points where actresses briefly took on Christ-like forms due to shadows or hair covering parts of the actresses' faces while they are in specific poses, creating the illusion of beards. He went so far as to say that he had suspicions that the film might be manipulated by supernatural forces, either divine or diabolical, to fulfill some sort of biblical prophecy. Regardless of the cause... The movie itself appears to be the site of supernatural activity, with strange, disturbing images briefly appearing on screen for reasons beyond mortal comprehension. To watch it is to invite something strange, and possibly evil, into your home, even if temporarily. Whatever the cause of the disturbing imagery, the film remains a creepy mystery for now. Mm. commentary. Or perhaps it's not such a creepy mystery. While neither I nor anyone else aside from possibly the filmmakers can say exactly what is going on in the footage, there are a number of possible explanations that are not supernatural. For starters, some of the spooky images are, well, not really what they are claimed to be. For example, in a scene where an actor allegedly grows fangs, if you look closely at the image, it becomes clear that there are no fangs, Just teeth and a low-quality image that makes the perfectly normal teeth reflect light in a slightly odd way. And if you're familiar with low-resolution images on black-and-white film, it really doesn't look like anything more than that. Some of the images, though, are decidedly odd. Even here, though, there may be a bit more going on in the natural rather than supernatural world. Turns out that transferring from an old reel of film to digital media for distribution or online viewing can cause some weird image distortions. And this is a known phenomenon. In addition, I have my suspicions that the relatively low-resolution black-and-white image provided by the film may make it more open to cheaper post-production digital manipulation than a 35mm color print or high-definition digital image would be. And, Frankly, having looked at some of the images, especially the webbed hands and the alleged transformations of actresses into Christ-like figures, they appear to me to be pretty clear examples of blurrier images promoting pareidolia, that is, the tendency for the brain to find patterns and random shapes, rather than the horrific items that they are claimed to be. While the film was, according to reports, taken to experts at the Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara, and those same experts reported that the film had not been tampered with, The low-resolution film and digital transfer could both easily create these accidental images without tampering. It's just the nature of the medium. Also, I'd like to say something about the way that photographic experts are often used in discussions of allegedly paranormal images. Most of the time, they are brought in to determine if the film has been tampered with or an image manipulated after the image was taken. The lesson we're supposed to take from this is that the images were clearly not created by the photographer or the filmmaker, and therefore must be truly unexplainable. But, well, I spent years doing photography as a hobby. I mostly did digital, but also mucked around a little bit with film, and I pretty quickly figured out that I could create all manner of weird and creepy images through changing aperture size, shutter speed, and so on. The film or digital image would not be tampered with or manipulated because I did all of this in camera and never did any post image editing or manipulation. So, if any of my ghost images were examined, and of course I created ghost images, there would be no sign of manipulation because I did everything before the film was developed or the image was downloaded using only the tools built into the camera. And on top of that, sometimes I would get weird images showing up not as a result of anything that I was doing but due to the environment where I was shooting. These could include strange patterns in dust or smoke, the ubiquitous orbs that people often cite as evidence of ghosts, and so on. In each case, with only one exception, which was a weird mist that appeared in a photo I took at an allegedly haunted hotel, I could, with a little work, figure out the source of the anomaly. So, when you see a photography expert opining that an image is not the result of tampering or editing, keep in mind that there's all sorts of other ways that seemingly weird images can show up that do not require film to be altered or images edited. What is perhaps more interesting than the images on the film, though, is the story of the discovery of the film on which the movie was shot, which seems to me perfect fodder for an attention-getting ghost story rather than a true event. Now, I don't know. Maybe running into bags of unused film does happen from time to time in Los Angeles. It never happened to me when I've been there, but maybe I was just hanging out in the wrong part of town. But daydreaming about making an homage to silent films and then stumbling across just the right film? That seems just a little too convenient, I suppose. Also, there's the fact that the film couldn't find a distributor, and that the filmmakers needed to draw some attention to it in order to remedy this problem. Put that together and... As an outside observer, it seems likely that the story of the found film was added at a later time in an attempt to draw attention to a movie that just wasn't getting any. I could, of course, be wrong. But if asked whether I thought it more likely that the film was found as described or that the filmmaker invented the story as a way of building up mystique after the fact, eh, the latter seems more likely. Also worth noting, the director was either truly unnerved by what he saw or, perhaps more likely in my opinion, he's a prankster. In a 2006 video that he uploaded to the internet, he describes many of the disturbing sequences, including Christ-like imagery involving some of the actresses, and also claims that he was being persecuted by his own family and the filmmaking industry while actively working on the film. There will be a link to this video in the blog post for this episode. Again, while he might have been saying what he perceived as the truth, I have more than a small suspicion that this was an attempt to build up publicity and help the film find distribution. The notoriety and marketing value of A Spooky Tale covers why the filmmakers may have wanted to push these stories, but let's talk about why the story caught on for a time in 2012 and 2013. Part of this is, of course, quite simple. As evidenced by the wide range of current and past paranormal podcasts and also the proliferation of paranormal websites as early as the mid-1990s, people love a good creepy story. So yeah, of course this story was going to catch on. But I think there's another thing that gives the story legs. Legend tripping, visiting a location to see a place where events allegedly occurred, is something of a time-honored tradition. When you watch a film that allegedly contains haunted images, or even just has strange or grisly rumors associated with it, you are legend tripping without ever having to leave your home. The same appeal is there. You get to take part and write yourself into the story as a participant, not just a passive consumer and what you make or take from the film becomes as much a part of the story as you watching it looking for signs of the supernatural. The venue in which you watch the film can be variable, which allows this sort of legend tripping to be more personalized than more traditional forms where you have to travel. Is this a communal experience in a theater with strangers? Is it a more intimate experience with friends gathered around a TV? Is it you alone, late at night, watching on a computer's monitor? The setting impacts the experience itself and can shape what it means, but your decision to watch with strangers, with friends, or alone can change what it means to you, as well as alter the meaning that you might bring to the media and the experience. The media may remain the same, but there is a vast difference in experience if it is you watching something alone as part of an exploration of the weird versus you watching with a group of friends as a lark to have a fun time and possibly see something creepy. This is, in truth, the case for many situations in which one might seek out a paranormal experience. But the difference becomes starker because it is now more personal. You have selected the parameters. If you are at home, you have invited the weird or creepy into your safe space, and you have more control over the media than you would over a destination where you might go in order to engage in some legend tripping. Moreover, when the site of the legend tripping is not a place, but rather a piece of media, then legend tripping becomes simpler. It is easier in this day of streaming media to watch something than it is to go somewhere. Even prior to the streaming era, home video allowed people to bring the spooky experience home with them. This makes it far more accessible than more traditional legend tripping, where you needed to either live very close to the physical site or have access to transportation, which, depending on distance, could require a substantial investment of time and money. Now, legend tripping by film is not particularly new. When I was in college back in the 90s, the in thing to do was to show The Wizard of Oz with the volume turned down low while playing Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon on repeat, as this would lead to odd places where the music and the images on the screen would seem to sync up. Many people attributed mystical meaning to this. Some thought it was eerie and creepy, possibly a sign of dark spiritual powers at work, Well, others thought that Roger Waters of Pink Floyd was simply a genius at producing albums and had synced the film to the movie intentionally. Still others regarded it simply as an interesting coincidence. Regardless, the point was to gather with your friends and experience the mishmash of Pink Floyd with The Wizard of Oz and be amazed. I was never particularly impressed, especially after I learned that you could achieve the same effect with a number of other films and albums. My favorite was learning that Dark Side of the Moon also synced up with one of the lesser 70s-era Godzilla movies, but experiencing the mashup of Pink Floyd and Wizard of Oz was still a rite of passage at college back in the 90s, and for all I know, may still be today. Surprisingly, while getting stoned when doing Dark Side of Oz was not unusual, I learned that drug use was not obligatory, and a surprisingly large number of people did it sober, which, you know, worked out well for me because, Back in college, I never did drugs or even drank alcohol. Regardless, though, the legend of the connection between the two works required investigation by many a college student. Wizard of Oz also features a scene in which it is said that you can see the body of an actor, hired to play a munchkin, who had hung himself. It is in the background in one of the scenes that takes place in the Forest of Oz, and on older, lower-resolution copies of the film, it does indeed look eerie. But in later high-definition copies, it becomes pretty clear that it is one of the large birds that was put on set during the scene simply walking about in the background. Still, I have known no shortage of people who've watched The Wizard of Oz simply to see a grisly discovery, much as people often physically legend trip to the scene of past violence or tragedy. Whatever one thinks they see in The Wizard of Oz, it's not a ghost. However, the 1980s comedy Three Men and a Baby is said to have a ghost caught on film, similar to Return to Babylon. In one scene, while Tom Selleck is on screen, a short person who is not part of the film can be seen standing still in the background, not taking part in the scene, looking towards the camera. Rumors quickly circulated that this person was, in fact, a ghost. Specifically, it was said that the person seen in the background was the spirit of a young boy who died in the house where the movie was filmed. While I have no way of knowing how many copies of the VHS were sold based on this rumor, I know that at least some folks might get a hold of it not because of an interest in the comedy, but specifically to see the ghost. And there was a fair amount of media coverage of this story at the time. The director, Leonard Nimoy, Hi there, Mr. Spock! made statements that it was just a cardboard cutout of the film's co-star, Ted Danson, whose character had multiple such cutouts which were seen during the film, and that the film was shot on a soundstage and not in a house. But that did little to stop the rumors flying. Of course, like The Wizard of Oz, as high-definition video became available, it became pretty easy to see that the allegedly spooky image was, in fact, a cardboard cutout of Ted Danson. Still, the alleged ghost boy is in one shot as opposed to the mini-images said to show the paranormal in Return to Babylon, which is one of the few cases where the film itself is said to be haunted. And that does make it unique. It's a worthy tale for those of us interested in how ghost stories adapt to technological change. And as it was shot on 16 mm black and white film during the digital age, it is likely that the low resolution image will never be cleared up, leaving us without a chance for a higher resolution image to eventually reveal the allegedly supernatural to be something more mundane. For the curious, the filmmakers have made Return to Babylon available on YouTube for free as of 2019. It's not a bad film by any means, and at 74 minutes, it's not a huge time investment. It plays more as homage to silent films, and often a comedy riffing off of those same films, than as a new and innovative use of silent film, but it is enjoyable. The film is more goofy than clever, but it has a delightfully weird sensibility that will appeal to many viewers, myself included. Hell, there's a sequence in which the original Hollywood Tarzan, Johnny Weissmuller, goes about his daily business in all manner of places in nothing but his Tarzan loincloth, and it quickly becomes bizarrely funny. If you are curious about what a low-budget silent film made in the modern day might look like, or you like absurd humor and film history, you should check it out. The link is in the show notes. One last thing before we end. In the introduction to the episode, I mentioned that there is a rumor that the film Poltergeist used real skeletons rather than prop skeletons. If you thought that sounds like a bit of an urban legend, as I did when I first heard it, it is not. It is, in fact, very true. A sequence in which a character falls into a swimming pool while it is under construction and finds herself surrounded by the skeletons of people who'd been buried on the land did, in fact, use real skeletons. Apparently, acquiring real skeletons was less expensive than having convincing prop skeletons made. However, the situation is actually even worse than it sounds. First off, to make the, again, I stress, real, skeletons match the aesthetic of the film, and for maximum scare factor, they were modified by the film crew to make them look as if they still had soft tissue attached and were actually far-decayed bodies rather than just skeletons. So yeah, Someone's remains were used not only as props in a film, but were dressed up for that part, arguably desecrated, which falls somewhere between tacky and disturbing. And it gets worse than that. According to the folks who worked on the film, the skeletons came from India. Now, that tracks. When I was a college student taking classes on skeletal anatomy, our professor explained that getting skeletons was actually pretty difficult, as people who donate their bodies for research and education are rare and so it had long been the practice to buy skeletons, which usually meant buying them from Asia, with India being the largest supplier. However, this practice fell out of favor because there is ample evidence that many of the skeletons bought by universities and medical schools for instruction came from people who had died indigent or homeless. Their bodies were most likely simply taken, in some cases stolen, and sold. So these skeletons bought by universities in Europe and the U.S., were often from people who had not consented to their skeletons being used in this way, and neither had their families. Due to ethical concerns, by the 1990s, skeletons for use in university instruction were becoming harder to come by. So, back to Poltergeist. When you watch the film, and you get to the scene where the mother is being pulled into the pit of decaying bodies, remember that those are real human remains and that they were likely from people who didn't know or consent to their bodies being used for anything other than burial or cremation. Oh, and just to add a bit of extra icing on the awful cake, the cast was not informed that these were real skeletons until well after the fact. While most people who share this story do so because it is shocking and salacious, I think that there is something else to be gained from this incident. Sometimes people will become so focused on a specific goal, in this case completing a film and making the props look realistic, that they fail to take some basic ethical standards into consideration, including respectful treatment of human remains and telling the actors that they are being put into a fit filled with human remains. Given the often disturbing history of my own field's treatment of burial, proper and respectful management of human remains is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about nowadays as an archaeologist. I am more than a little surprised to learn about this happening in the film industry, though perhaps I shouldn't be. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropologygmail.com. At that's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at media.com Click on the Ghost Opology link, and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky! <laughs>